continue talking about that this morning. We've spent the last few weeks since Easter talking about this very important, in fact, this life-important goal that it is so important that we as who, who claim to be followers of Jesus, that we are genuinely followers of Jesus. And if you're with us this morning, just kind of investigating or you're a visitor, um, you'll, you'll know a little bit more of what Christians are accountable to this morning. And I would encourage you, I don't think there's a better commitment to make, a better journey to go on, but make no mistake, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not always easy, any of those things. And that's why we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple, an apprentice, a follower follower of Jesus. And one thing that I want to remind us of this morning, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, is that a critical piece of following Jesus is leading others to find flourishing through following Jesus as well. Right? We, we can't claim to be followers of Jesus if we don't take seriously the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus told, told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, apprentices, followers of all the nations. That's everywhere in the world. God wants people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be a part of his family. And that's the reason behind this next part, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is a holy adoption ceremony. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Which really, in that verse, we find the core of what it means to be a follower of God, a disciple of Jesus. It is based on the word of God and the presence of God. And we are meant to be people who carry the word of God and the presence of God inseparably everywhere we go in everything that we do. And when we carry both of those things, both the word and the presence, we live out the truth and the love of Jesus everywhere we go. And that's, that's what it means to be a follower. And Jesus says that when we do that, we will be lights in an otherwise often dark world, right? We wanna be those kinds of people. But understand this, Jesus called all of his disciples to join him in his great mission of restoring a broken world by leading one person at a time to find flourishing and following him. One person at a time. You know, and, and we sometimes make the mistake of thinking in terms of mass groups of people and, and mobs of people and statistics of people, but at the end of the day, we're each a person that God values. And so is every other person that sometimes gets lumped into a statistic or a, or a group. We are individuals that God cares about, and God has sent each one of us to other individuals in this world. And so what that means is that first we're followers of Jesus, but it also means that every follower is a leader of someone. Every follower of Jesus is a leader of someone. And you might, I don't know how that, that hits you. I don't know if that makes you nervous. If you're like, whoa, 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 I, I didn't sign up for that. I'm not ready for that. I'm too broken for that. I'm not gifted in that. I, I've never been a leader. I'm not even sure I like to be a follower. I'm just here. And Jesus doesn't give you that option. You're called to be both a follower and a leader. And again, his word and his spirit, his presence, are available to you today because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are available to help you be both a good follower of Jesus and a good leader for Jesus. But let's get back to what it means to be a leader. It really just means influence. Anyone you influence, you bring leadership to their life. In some way, shape, or form, you bring leadership to their life. And it might be a peer leadership. It's not so much that you're in this authoritative position, there's some parts of life where you may be in authority. 
But anyone that you have relationship with, you have influence in their lives. And we are meant to use that influence to lead people not to think about how great we are and not even just to find out how great they are, but to find flourishing in how great God is. That's what we're supposed to use that influence for. And, and you are a leader, and often you are meant to be a leader of those closest to you, right? When we think about leaders, sometimes in our culture, we are, we are such a celebrity-oriented culture. In fact, we've turned everything into celebrity worship, right? That's the way we, we treat politics, and that's the way we treat business leaders, and that's the way we treat church leaders. And by the way, that's a mistake anytime that we are worshiping personalities or worshiping the success of people rather than giving God glory for it. We are making a mistake there. Because the Bible says pretty clearly if leaders are successful in any category of society, it's because God gave them favor to be successful. And we often think in terms of that when we think of leadership, and that's, that's appropriate. Praise God for some of the amazing leaders that he's given the world in all the different categories of society. I praise God for some of the business leaders in our church that are thinking spiritually about how to bring, uh, bring flourishing to our community. I praise God for some of the educational leaders in our church that are bringing flourishing to the next generation. I praise God for political leaders that take their commitment to Jesus more seriously than their commitment to their own wealth or power. And I praise God for spiritual leaders that, that do the same. But here's the deal. The most influential leadership in the world is one-on-one -on -one personal relationship. It's the most influential. I mean, think about this. If we, if, if we pulled the room and said, who's the most influential person in your life? You probably wouldn't pick a celebrity. In fact, if there's any level of health in your life, you would probably pick some relationship along the way. It might be a parent or a grandparent. It might be a mentor or a friend, a boss, a coworker, a sibling. Someone who has been the most positively influential person in your life has probably had a re relationship with you. Now, the influence goes both ways because sometimes the most painful people we've had in our life had that kind of influence and misused it, right? We have potential to do the same. But all of, that, all of that influence, whether it's with family or roommates, coworkers, neighbors, we need to remember that Jesus has called us to use that influence to draw people to flourishing, to, to invite people on a journey that we are on ourselves, that we are not perfect at yet, but we are experiencing the blessings of. We are meant to invite people on that journey. But there is one direction of influence that we are all responsible for. So I may not be responsible for your neighbors or, or your coworkers or your friends. That's your sphere of influence. That's an area of mission for you. But there is one area of influence that God calls all of his people to in every generation. And I want to show that to you in a passage in the Old Testament where some of this was summed up. And I want you to think about, I read to you a moment ago, the Great Commission of Jesus. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is one of the two most famous statements of Jesus. The other was the Great Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as the number one command of the Bible. And then the Great Commission that Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and I'll be with you. Always, right? Two most important statements of Jesus to the church. And if that is the great commission, that what I want to read to you this morning is, is kind of the great commission of the Old Testament. 
It's kind of when a, a leader that was, was an image of Jesus, a, a first version of Jesus, it's when Moses actually kind of summed up the entire Old Testament law into a couple of similar statements that were also supposed to be the identity and purpose statements of the nation of Israel. They're statements that Jesus later modified as he extended his people group, as he extended his family to all the nations of the world through his death, resurrection, and the outpouring of his spirit. Jesus modified these statements and made them available to all of us. So what I want you to see here today is that from the Old Testament commissioning by Moses to the people of Israel under the Spirit of God, to Jesus' commissioning of the church as he was about to pour out the Spirit of God, God has always been calling his people to live as his people in a broken world and to exercise influence in a specific and very important direction that I want to focus on over these next few weeks. And so to see that, we'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter six. And in Deuteronomy chapter six, Moses is kind of getting into the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is kind of Moses' final teachings and sermons put together for the nation of Israel. It's, it's shortly before Moses is going to go to heaven and the people of Israel are gonna move into the promised land. Moses, if you'll remember, has spent decades trying to lead the people of God to live out the the law of Moses given on a mountain, Mount Sinai, after they left Egypt. And so, you know, when you have someone who has lived it for a whole lot of years that gives you a little bit of advice, you should pay attention to that, right? And the book of Deuteronomy is Moses, after trying to live the law for decades with the people of Israel, he's giving a little bit of advice. You know, I am so grateful for some of the, the senior saints in my life that occasionally give me a little bit of advice, and sometimes their advice is as simple as, Caleb, chill out. This isn't the worst you're ever gonna face. You're gonna make it through this. I'm like, I think that's encouraging, maybe, <laughs> you know? Or, or sometimes a profound bit of wisdom that helps me live a part of life differently than I've ever lived it before. Sometimes a warning that says, hey, Caleb, I know you haven't, haven't experienced this yet, but you're kind of tiptoeing on the edge of danger. You should probably take a step or two back from that. You know, when we get that kind of wisdom from those that have been walking the journey for a while, it's good to pay attention. We live in a culture that does not always value that, but the Bible values that. And so Moses has kind of been giving a little bit of a history of that in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find what the, the Jewish people refer to as the Shema. It became the dominant statement that summed up the Jews' responsibility to the law of Moses. For a, a practicing Jew, it was often prayed by them, both as their first prayer in the morning and and their final prayer at the end of the day. It was a reminder of both who they were called to be and what they were called to do. And so this phrase called the Shema is based on the first word of the, the verse that it begins with. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, it says, listen, O Israel. And Shema is simply the Hebrew word, listen up. Listen up, O Israel. The Lord is our God the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. I want to stop there for a moment. And I want you, some of that probably sounds familiar. 
Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord alone. I first want you to understand the reason that this was such a priority and such an identity statement for the people of Israel is because they lived in a world where there were no monotheistic religions. Meaning that there was no religion that believed there was only one God. All of the other religions believed in multiple gods. They were, they were, they were, uh, they were pantheistic religions. They were religions that believed in that everything could have a god. They were religions that worshipped multiple gods. You see this in the nation of Egypt in the Old Testament, but it was true also in Canaan, in Babylon, in Assyria, in all of these other nations that, that would surround Israel over the course of its history. They would all believe in multiple gods, and they would all think it was ridiculous for Israel to believe in only one God. That sounds weird to us because we live in a nation that is largely um, believed in monotheistic religions, monotheistic religions largely stemming from Judaism, both in Islam and Christianity, are the dominant religions in the world today in most parts of the world. And so it's weird for us to think that that's weird to them, but that would have been a, a, a statement of identity that would have been embarrassing in the world at that time. And what did Jesus, or what did God make most of the first 10, first 10 commandments about was about understanding that he, he alone was God. No other God should be worshiped but him. And so this was a statement to remind them that they belong to the one true God, that there was no other real God besides him. There might be demons posing as gods. There might be physical images that people posed as gods, but there's only one true God. And how do we respond to the one true God? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, your, your soul and with all your strength. Jesus would later quote this as the most important commandment, that you love God with everything that you've got, internal, external, all of your influence, all of your inputs, that you love God, you are devoted to him. And by the way, Sound Life Church, our staff talks about this often, but our number one core value is that we would be devoted to Jesus that we would take what God has been calling people to since the beginning of the world and that we would make that the centerpiece of our lives, that we would be devoted to Jesus more than we are devoted to anything else. And you will find that every strategy of the enemy seeks to divert your devotion. Every strategy starts with trying to get you undevoted to the one true God. And so God called his people in Israel to devotion. Jesus has called his church to devotion. We want to be people that devote ourselves to God. And, and only one person has ever done that perfectly. Jesus came and in his life and in his death, he perfectly devoted himself to God. But then as he returned to the Father to pour out his spirit, he said, I'm gonna pour out my spirit so that my spirit can help you devote yourselves to God and accomplish that great commission in Matthew 28. So let's look at the commission to the people of Israel that gives us some direction in this. Picking up in verse 6, it says, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Doesn't that sound like the Great Commission? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Verse 7, I want you to focus on this. Repeat them again and again to your children Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
In other words, every part of your life, God is meant to be evident. He's meant to be evident in every part of your life. And and with one specific direction of influence, God wants to make sure that the children around you know that you are devoted to God. We live in a culture that loves to internalize everything, and we just kind of like to think that what's in our heart is all that matters, what's in our mind is all that matters, and God says, no, everything that is, is physical about you is meant to be an overflow of what is internal in you. And, and God wanted their devotion, their wholehearted devotion to be poured out, particularly in front of the next generation through everything that they talked about from their waking up to their going to bed. Everything that they talked about in their home, but everything that they talked about in public. So much so that he says, you need to just, you need to tie it on your foreheads and on your wrists and, and everywhere. And, and the Jewish people, many of them took this very seriously. They had what they called phylacteries, which were like little wooden boxes that they would put little scriptures in and wear it on their forehead or on their wrists or other things like that. What Jesus and what God really intended, though, was for every part of their life to be evident of following the word of God. Every part of their life was meant to demonstrate their loyalty to the word of God and particularly in a specific direction to the next generation. I want you to think for a moment, what does your life show to the next generation? Whether they're your biological children or not, and I'll speak to that in just a moment, but what does your life show to the next generation? The Apostle Paul took a little bit different direction from tying the word on your forehead. He said the fruit of your life in the presence of God should be things like love and joy and peace and patience. Is that what the next generation sees from you? Jesus never stopped saying that that the word of God should be evident in our lives. Is that what the next generation sees from you? Is that what your younger coworkers see from you? Is that what your kids and grandkids see from you? Is that what the kids in the neighborhood see from you? Is that what the next generation sees from us? Now that I'm guilt-tripping you, I always have to confess, I am not perfect at this either, right? I'm not perfect at this either. In fact, if you, you, know, you want any proof, you could ask my kids, like, hey, is your dad, does your dad perfectly live out the fruit of the Spirit? And they might love me enough to lie to you for a minute, but it wouldn't be true. Like, I'm not perfect at those things. But I am called to it. I am, if I am devoted to Jesus, I cannot, de- I cannot deny that I am called to it. I am called to influence the next generation. And a critical piece of following God is leading the next generation to find flourishing through following him as well. A critical piece of it. A critical piece of us living out the great commission, a critical focus of us living out the great commandment is investing what God has done in us in the next generation. And that doesn't mean that our own peers and our own generation don't matter. The great commission is clear that every nation and every generation is included, but there is from start to finish in scripture a focus on the next generation. In fact, what was the first commission ever given to human beings in Genesis chapter 1, 28, that, that God told Adam and Eve, he's like, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply and I want you to cultivate the next generation like you're cultivating this garden right now. I want you to cultivate the next generation to be fruitful and to show my glory and to reflect my image to the world just like you're cultivating this garden right now. 
Now, Adam and Eve had bigger problems before they ever got to that stage of that commission, but God has always been interested in us handing on and reflecting him to the next generation so that they can reflect him to the next generation. It's always been a part of God's plan, pre-sin, post-sin, and until Jesus returns, at least for now, that is still the plan. We see this concept of a generational baton pass of the words and ways of God carried throughout Scripture But one of the passages I want to show you is in Psalm 78, written hundreds of years after Moses said these words in in Deuteronomy. You see throughout the Psalms and throughout the prophetic books, you see in the Psalms him encouraging the people of God to invest in the next generation. And you see in the prophetic books, the prophets saying, you screwed it up with the next generation. Like, turn things around and get it right. So it speaks to both, but in Psalm 78, we read, starting in verse four, I love this passage. Sound Life Church, I want this passage to characterize our impact in our community. It says, we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob and he gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. Think about the significance of the word of God. Verse six, but why? So that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. And I'll stop reading there, but the psalm goes on to talk about the benefits of doing that and the consequences of not doing that. But make no mistake, we are supposed to take responsibility for the next generation. Just as Jesus has called us to apprentice those that he has placed in our lives, he is counting on us to teach the next generation his ways. And it's supposed to start with us sharing testimonies of what God has done. I am amazed and in awe of what God has done in the lives of some of those who have gone before me in faith some who are in our church, some who are with Jesus today. I am amazed at what God has done in their their lives, and I hope that someday I can share some of those stories. And even to this point, I'm reminded to tell some of the stories of what God has already done in my life. We are called to teach the next generation about God, but we also live in a culture where this is not normal. We live in a culture that treats kids as one of two extremes, and both extremes are wrong. The first extreme is that we treat kids like they're an inconvenience. There was a statistic that came out when I was a youth pastor in Portland. It was a kind of a survey done in the city, and, and it showed, and this was years ago now, it showed that in, in Portland, people preferred dogs to children. And there's some reasons I understand why. But that's not a good thing when we prefer animals to human beings. That's not a biblical idea. That's actually throwing in the face of God his own image and saying, we don't really want any more of that. And the point is this, that we treat children 
like they're an inconvenience. And, and there are extreme versions of that. I think that, that often that that's our culture's emphasis on things like abortion, and, and that is a painful and, and, and um, extreme result of this idea that children are not important, that the next generation is not important. But we, I've, I've grown in a generation of parents that we don't really know how to deal with our kids. You know, I remember my wife who grew up in church and grew up around kids. I did not grow up in church and I didn't grow up around kids. When we had, when our kids were little, I was like, I don't know what to do with these things. Like, what do we do? What do I do with it? My wife's like, well, let's start. That's a her. That's not an it. Sorry, Stella. And I had to learn, like, how do you, how do you raise a child I'm still not perfect at it, but God is with us too. He's gracious and he's helpful in it and all those kinds of things. But we have been taught by our culture that children are the last thing. Your career is more important. Your own romantic pursuits are more important. Your pleasures, your retirement, your vacation are more important. You having what you want and accomplishing what you want to accomplish is more important than your children. And can I tell you, you cannot say that you believe the Bible and live that way. It's wrong. Children are not an inconvenience. But there's another extreme that we can fall into as well. And sometimes in rejecting the first, we lean into the second extreme. The other extreme is that we treat our children as an obsession. We treat our children as our own identity. We give them everything. And and our goal in life is whatever their whim is, we want to please it. Whatever they want, we want to give it to them. We want to give them a better life than what we had. And so we spoil them rotten, and rotten is the operative term. And we destroy the image of God inside of them by spoiling them the way the devil wants to, and they end up acting like him. And there is, there is a, the, these two extremes that dominate our society of both treating children as if they're not valuable or treating children as if they're the only thing that is valuable, and neither one is true. We have to get the next generation correct. And we're never gonna be perfect at it. But often it starts with what is our heart condition towards that, right? Have we idolized children and worshiped them? And our whole identity is wrapped up in them and what they do and how they treat us and what career they choose and how successful they are in Little League and all these other things? Because our identity wrapped up in them? Or... Do we wish they were just not even in existence and we could just live our lives without them? We want to be careful of those thought processes. And and don't get me wrong, both of those extremes have manifested in my own thinking, in my own life, in my own parenting. And yet where I've allowed those things to play out in my parenting, it's not good. It's not healthy for my kids or for me. You know, the Bible says this interesting statement about children. It's something that's worth meditating on. In Psalm 127, verse 3, it says, Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. I want to say a couple things. One, every time God gives a gift to humanity, it is not only a reward, it is also a responsibility. From the creation of the world that he said to Adam and Eve, here you go, this is for you. But then what did he want them to do? Cultivate it. There was responsibility. And the reward led to responsibility that could lead to more reward. 
And children are a reward that is a responsibility that can also lead to more reward. There's this cycle of reward and responsibility that actually should, should also be a pattern for healthy parenting. There's a right balance of rewards and responsibilities in healthy parenting. It's how God wants to operate with us. There's this right balance of rewards and responsibilities that God raises us into that maximizes who we are, that maximizes our value. We value ourselves, we see how God values us, and yet we also don't worship ourselves. There is reward and there is responsibility. Children are a gift and a reward, which implies responsibility. Now, I also want to say, and this is hard for us, we live in a very individualized society, and so we think, when, you know, there, you may be facing the temptation right now to be like, I don't have children, this has nothing to do with me. Raise your hand if you, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, you might think, well, I, I'm not, I'm not of, of an age to have children, or I had all my children, they're out of the house already, or maybe you're thinking, man, I tried to have children, I didn't, or I'm single, I, you know, all these things. I, I get all of that, but can I tell you that in, in actually a larger number of societies in the world are, are not individualistic, they're actually communal societies, and in communal societies, which I think this aspect of those societies represents God a little better than individualized societies do, in those societies, they would read this verse and, and everyone in the entire community would say, yes, every time a baby is born, it's a gift to me. Because they see children coming into anywhere in the community is a gift to them, is a reward to them. In fact, many of those societies understand the biblical picture of children, that children are a reminder of hope, they are a reminder of innocence, they are a reminder of what is good in the world, they are a reminder of what God intended the world to be, they are a reminder that some of the longings in our soul that often get crushed by the hardships of life, that there is still a hope that those things will manifest. Children are meant to be a gift to the whole community. And that's why, you know, when we're standing in the church lobby and I almost get taken out at the knees by a kid running across the lobby, I'm like, that's a healthy community right there. Now, we don't want anybody going to the emergency room. Right, when kids are screaming and yelling in the midst of my very important lecture on the Bible and the word of God. That's family, Right, like I've never been at a family, a family Thanksgiving uh, dinner where when the, the sage of the, you know, my grandma or my grandpa or somebody is like giving their, their speech about what they're thankful for, that's usually when some kid goes off, right? Or they're in the kitchen putting their fingers in the dessert or something, right? Be, that's family, and we want to celebrate family. And, and communal societies understand that every kid is a blessing. It means that their way of life is going to carry on for another generation. It means that someone else will remember them. It means that they will be able to have an impact that goes beyond their life. And in eternity, that means so much more. Maybe the closest example we can relate to in our own very individualistic society is thinking about grandparents. You know, I don't know, uh, I don't know very many grandparents who haven't said something along the lines of this. I enjoy my grandkids more than I ever enjoyed my own kids. <laughs> they might say it a little nicer than that, but that's how I hear it. My own parents have said that. 
My mom then will say, no, we loved you way more. My mom feels guilty. My dad's like, no, <laughs> no. The grandparenting's way more fun. Why? And they'll usually say you get all the benefits without all the work. Right? You, you get the benefits of watching these young people experience and discover the world the way you once did, of dreaming about what they're going to do with their lives the way you once did, of being amazed at the little things in life the way we're still supposed to be. You know, there's something amazing about watching young people discover the world. And we're supposed to live that way as a church family, by the way. Just like we're supposed to acknowledge brothers and sisters as a deeper than DNA relationship the minute they're adopted into the family of God. That's the beautiful thing. That's why the church is the ultimate strategy to erase racism because it goes deeper than just getting along. It says, hey, let's be family. That's why, that's why the, the orphans and the widows find fathers and family in the church because God has adopted them, because God has taken ownership. But do you know what that requires of all of us? To also live like it's family. To also think like it's family, to think bigger than ourselves, to think bigger than who lives under my roof and is fed by my bank account, than who's a beneficiary of my income. It means that we think in terms of a family that's bigger than we could ever provide for on our own. But we're also beneficiaries of that family. Why am I, why am I talking to you about this? I, I believe that it's, it's a little bit of a lost thing in our society, even in the church. And to just be really personal for a moment, almost two years ago, um, Jeanette and I were at our general council uh, which is what, the, it's kind of a funny name for what the Assemblies of God, our movement, our denomination brings pastors and, and missionaries from all over the world once every two years to hear from our leadership on, on how the movement is doing, to think about new missional strategies, to be refreshed in our callings, to spend time praying and worshiping together. And Jeanette and I went to that um, it, uh, uh, almost two years ago, and it was coming up on the end of our first year of leading, of being the, the lead pastors at Sound Life Church. I remember kind of going into it with this type of a mentality of, Lord, I'm tired, but I survived the first year. It was also COVID and all that stuff, right? I think we were all like, I survived this everything, you know? And, and so all of that was going on in my head and my heart. I was, I was worn out, and I was like, Lord, I, I need you to speak to me. You're the leader of this church. Like, what is your vision? Like, what are you wanting to do that is unique to Sound Life Church? Like, I understand, I think, what your word says, but what are you wanting to accomplish and I felt like the Lord spoke really two clear statements to me that our board of deacons and our pastoral team have talked about in different moments. And, and one of those was that, that Sound Life Church is meant to take responsibility for our county and bringing genuine flourishing to our communities. And that's something that we think through when we think through our other campuses. It's something we think through in our outreach strategies. It's something we think through in the partners that we give to through Mission Forward is how do we bring genuine Christ-centered flourishing to our community? and to those that we have influence in. But there was another, another statement that I felt like the Lord spoke to me that is a specific application of that flourishing in our communities. I felt like the Lord said to me, Caleb, I want you to spend the next 20 years raising up the next generation of devoted disciples. 
As I prayed about that, I felt like part of the reason the Lord wants us to focus on that is because it's going to get harder, not easier. It's going to get harder. And I am not excited about that as a parent. I'm not excited about that as an American. I'm not excited about that as, as someone who loves a lot of things about my community, my family, and has high hopes for our nation, has high hopes for our community, has high hopes for my children and my, my grandchildren, and all the, all, you know, it's just, which is sometimes good to think about, but weird to think about when you're not there yet. I think it will get harder to live out our faith over the next 20 years. It shouldn't be surprising to you. And we have an opportunity to raise up a generation of devoted disciples who will represent Jesus faithfully in that community. And that is an exciting thing. That is a biblical thing. That is something that we see throughout the pages of scripture that in every season of the world, there has been darkness and yet God has been looking for those who will allow him to cultivate light. And I want to just say, Sound Life Church, if you're going to be a part of Sound Life Church, we are going to take as much responsibility as we are capable of for the next generation. Now, we're going to love every generation because I think in a healthy family, every generation matters. Every generation is needed. Every generation has things to offer that the other generations do not. Scripture speaks very clearly to that, right? But the focal point of our investment needs to be the next generation's. It needs to be how do we teach them the glory of God? How do we invest in them the glory of God? How do we show them and prepare them? Because my hope is that 20 years from now, there will be a holier generation of Sound Life Churchers than there is today. My hope is that there will be young men and women who are willing to lead renewal and revival in their own generation. And my hope is that if God withholds revival because it's time for judgment on our nation, then my prayer is that there will be a generation of young people who will be faithful to him through that season. I don't want, I, I don't want my children they have to be a remnant but I would rather them be a remnant than be swept along in the waves of culture and I would rather that Jesus have testimony in our culture that he is worthy he is worthy he is worthy and he is more worthy than any other dream or ambition or pursuit that we will ever come up with he is worthy And someday you will be gone and I will be gone if the Lord doesn't come back. But my hope is that though our names will not be remembered and our careers won't matter anymore, our retirements won't matter anymore, our networking won't matter anymore, though those things are gone, my prayer, and I pray this over this church, that there will be a community of faithful saints here that will bear witness to the glory of God.
I think that we are called to raise up the next generation of devoted disciples. And the question for us at Sound Life is, what does that look like? I think that we have everything that we need to do it. We have everything that we need to do it. But we have to recognize the responsibility that comes with the reward, and we have to give ourselves to it. We are going, the biggest challenge for every generation is to be less selfish. We are gonna have to be less selfish if we're gonna raise up a generation that's more devoted. We're gonna have to be better examples of faithfulness for them to stand on our shoulders and take faithfulness to a new level. We're gonna have to be more generous, more loving, more caring. We're gonna have to work harder. We're gonna have to sleep less. We're gonna have to spend less on ourselves. We are going to have to do, we are going to have to do everything short of suffering for the sake of those that don't yet know Jesus. And doesn't that sound like parenting? You're like, no, they're suffering too. <laughs> which we will celebrate the greatest of which on Mother's Day next week. <laughs> right? We're called to this, and, and we need to think about how do we do that. But can I tell you there's one way that we all start with, and it's back in Deuteronomy 6, as Moses begins to apply that great commission of the Jewish people. In verse 20 through 24, he says this, this powerful statement. He says, in the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws and decrees and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? I hear that in so many ways. I hear that, that statement in the innocent voice of a child saying, Dad, why do you do that? Why do you go to church all the time? Why are you going to serve people? They're not going to do anything back for you. Dad, why are you doing that? I also hear it in probably my own cynical voice as a teenager. Why is God making us do all this stuff? Why is this, why are you doing this old religion? Why do you believe the Bible? Why do you trust God? Right, there's, it's a, kids are gonna go through those stages and ask, but what you, what you will know is that whether they say it out loud or they're thinking it in their head, every generation will ask this question. What is the meaning of these laws, decrees, regulations that the Lord our God commanded us to obey? And then you must tell them. And I'm gonna sub in some words here if you can track along with me. We were the devil's slaves in sin. But Jesus brought us out of sin with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes dealing terrifying blows against sin and the devil and all his minions. He brought us out of sin so that he could give us this land he had sworn to give our ancestors. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. Why? Because God has blessed us and he has shown us the way to continue to walk in his blessing. 
even in a broken world, even in the face of the devil and sin that has mastered us. God has shown us the way to flourishing. He has blessed us when we did not deserve it, when we deserved the eternal punishment of hell. Jesus, by his own suffering, came to rescue you and me, and we better dare not diminish the sacrifice of Jesus and the price that he paid to help us avoid the cost that we should have paid. We should bear witness to the next generation that there is nothing better than serving God. There's nothing nothing better than obeying his word. There is nothing better. And it's what brings blessing in our lives. Inside and out, it is what brings blessing in our lives. And everything else in this world is foolishness and is wasted. And we are here not to shame people for that, but to rescue them from that. And what I know is that children young people, the next generation, young adults, young parents. I still today need this from those that have gone before me that are older than me in faith. So the next generation, but children especially, need to both see and hear the story of God's restoration in our lives. In our lives, they need to see and hear. They need to see the evidence that God has done something in you. They don't need you to teach them theology. They need you to demonstrate it in the way that you live. They need to see a changed life, a transformed heart. And if you feel like you're a parent that you've screwed up all along the way, then even better for them to see transformation right here and now. Even better for you to humble yourself and shock them into spiritual awakeness by changing your life right now. Even better. And if you are a grumpy, selfish grandparent in front of your kids, even better for you to change the way that you live right now. And if you are one of those saints that has been sweetened through suffering by the presence of God, thank you for being the evidence of Jesus to the next generation. Children need to see it, they need to hear it, and they should see it in us. They should see evidence and they should hear the story. There's no, there's no place in the church we've made a mistake of saying, shh, don't tell us about your sin. We don't want to talk about that here. No, 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 no. We're supposed to be unashamed of our sin. We're not supposed to parade it around. A favorite preacher once said, it's good to be vulnerable, but don't walk out on stage naked. What did he mean? He said, it's good to share about what God has saved you from, but don't parade it around and brag about it. Don't brag about it. But your children need to hear what God has rescued you from. The, the next generation needs to hear at the appropriate time and the appropriate way what God has rescued from. They need to hear how sin broke us. They need to know that sin was our master, that we were not free, we were not good, we were not, not great on our own. We were slaves of something we could not control until Jesus set us free. They need to hear that from us. Because they'll wonder why we live the way we do, and someday they'll need Jesus to be their Savior as well. Our lives are meant to teach them in word and in action what it means to live a flourishing life in the presence of God in the midst of a broken world. So as I wrap up today, and we're going to be talking about this a little more practically in some ways in the, in the weeks to come. But first, to those of you who are parents, can I just remind you 
that while you have kids in your home, that's your number one ministry. It shouldn't be your only one because if it's your only one, your kids will never see you actually doing ministry. They won't recognize that they are your ministry. They need to see you doing ministry beyond them and you're capable of that, but they are your number one focus. They're your number one focus. They need to come with you in ministry. They need to see you doing ministry. They need you to see you being ministered to. It is your number one thing, and that, that may mean that you need to change your work schedule. There are things that I have put off in my career because I am responsible to disciple my children first. It also means that your marriage needs to be strong, that you need to not idolize your children above your marriage because the marriage relationship is meant to be one of the great pictures of how God loves his people. And how husbands love their wives and wives love their husbands is meant to demonstrate to children in the world how God loves them. We wanna put that first and show them what it means to follow Jesus. If you don't show them what it means to live out a successful career, but you show them the way to Jesus, good job. If you don't get them a full-ride scholarship to college, but you show them what it is to, to follow Jesus, good job. If you're not a perfect human being, but you show them your need for Jesus, good job. Now may the Lord help you with some of those other things too, because he has those blessings in mind. Stop majoring on the minors and keep the most important thing the most important thing. For those of you that are non-parents, I said that this applies to you too. Can I challenge you to start taking joy in children? And if you have wanted children and have not been able to, to have them, can I encourage you to take that pain to the Lord and ask him to direct it to something fruitful? It is a hard thing, but God has purpose for it. He has purpose for it. Non-parents, God is a God of adoption. He built a family of connections that go deeper than DNA without just biological connections. He's a father to the fatherless. He, is, he loves orphans and widows. Paul called Timothy his son by no biology of his own. Naomi called Ruth her daughter by no biology of her own. We are meant to form parenting relationships with people that are not our biological relatives. We are meant to invest. Can I tell you, some of you seniors, we need you to invest in young parents who don't have family support nearby. We need you to love on the next generation we need you to be the prayer support. We need you to be those people that, for Jeanette and I, there were people that dropped off groceries when we weren't making enough money in the early stages of our ministry. There were people that took us out to lunch, and there were people that refrained from preaching their personal gospel to us and just simply asked us the question, how are you doing? We need that from you. Single people, parents, Married people without kids, be an auntie, be an uncle. Be present, be a mentor. Can I tell you that, that, that every kids and youth pastor relies on healthy adults to make that ministry happen? Do you know that on an average Sunday, Pastor Sean serves 
nearly 200 kids. And he does a pretty stinking good job of it. But I can tell you he is desperate for the help of those of you that serve in that ministry. And he wouldn't be hurting if there were a few more. Can I tell you the most important part of Pastor Susie's youth ministry is mentors that help lead small groups and application discussions of the word that is preached? Like, where are you investing in the next generation? I don't want to hear that you're too old or you're, you're too bad or you're too broken or you're too this or you're too that. Like, change it and do what God said to do. Do what God said to do. Be a parent to kids that aren't your kids. Be a grandparent. Can I tell you, we have a lot of single parents in our church who are champion parents, who are amazing parents, who are doing the job of mom and dad, who are working a job, raising kids, doing all that kind of stuff. Can I tell you, they could use a little support. They could use a little support. And, and I could also tell you stories of how people in this church are already doing that. Those are the best stories. Those are, those are like oh, that sounds like God, stories. It's never too late. I wanna close with Psalm 71, 18 that says this. I love this prayer. Now that I am old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. And what is gonna be the sign to him that that is true? He says, let me proclaim your power to this new generation your mighty miracles to all who come after me. I don't know if you're old and gray or if you feel like God might abandon you. But can I tell you, would you look for a way for God to use you to proclaim him to the next generation? What do you have to offer? Maybe it's just personal relationship and can I remind you that's the most important kind of leadership. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, sometimes your word rests heavy on our hearts. And Lord, I pray that this morning, if there are those that your word is falling heavy on their hearts, I pray that you would remind them that you are a God that redeems, that there is no failure or brokenness that you can't turn into victory, into healing, into wholeness. Pray that you would remind us that there's no pain that we feel that you don't want to use to bring healing to someone else. You somehow validate all of our brokenness and repurpose it for flourishing. And Lord, I pray that you would do that in Sound Life Church this morning. Heads bowed and eyes closed, I just have a different question for you. And just out of respect for each other, just ask that you do that. Heads bowed, heads bowed, eyes closed. If talking about the next generation has brought up pain in your heart, would you just lift a hand? Because I want to pray for healing. Yeah, hands all over the room. Yeah. I just want you to know that God sees you. He sees you. And maybe he has a greater purpose even for you than for many of the rest of us in this. You can put those hands down.
Father, I pray this morning that you would put our hearts in order. And Lord, if there are things that are broken, that means we need you to heal them right now in the name of Jesus. Would you send your presence? You said it would always be with us. Send your presence to heal. Heal what's broken. If our priorities have been a whole different direction, I pray, Lord, that you would repurpose our priorities and show us our place in this generational calling to hand on to the next generation what you have called us to. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of Sound Life Church that it has been a multi-generational church. I thank you, Lord, for many of our seniors who this church is healthy today because of their prayers, because of their generosity, because of their disciple-making ministry. I praise you for that. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to carry that torch, that baton, faithfully to the next generation. And Lord, would you let the testimony of our church and of our lives be. There was a church in South Pierce County that raised up a generation of devoted disciples in a nation that seemed determined to go the other direction. Father, would you do this miracle among us, personally, corporately, because we can't do it on our own. We need you, Holy Spirit. Manifest your word in us so that the generations to come might know the glories of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.